0: Today will be the first talk in sort of the new section of the Tower of Ivory that I'm doing. We'll start to treat each of the books of the Bible in a longer series. Now, these talks will certainly be shorter, and I'm going to try to do them a little more often, maybe twice a month or more, uh, depending on how far ahead of myself I get. Uh, the reason being that I'm doing this is because in some of the Bible studies that I've gone to in other parishes, uh the formats usually someone reads from the bible and then everyone talks about you know like give it a little bit of time and they talk about how they felt or what they thought about it but there's no sort of baseline for them to talk about what they thought about it and i've heard some kind of silly things out of these uh you know like the incorrect idea that the blessed mother went through labor i've also heard that adam and eve were divided against each other from the start which was not true I've also heard that John the Baptist might have forgotten about Jesus, that he was the Messiah and Son of God, and doubted that. Right? None of those things, right, are true. And and we should have a little bit more of an idea of what the the Bible is saying before we just go and start saying these things, because they can mislead people. Uh, yeah, all of this was happened because they weren't given any direction. So that's what these talks want. I'm just give a general. Here's the the book. Here's, you know, the way to kind of tackle it. Here's how to tackle maybe some of the more challenging passages in it and to incorporate that into your understanding. Uh, what is God? How is God speaking to, through you or through the Bible to you? You know, what is he saying to his church and to the world through this? Um, I could spend the, you know, the, there are going to be shorter talks. I could spend the rest of my life just talking about the Bible, right? It's never, I'm never going to exhaust it. Uh, but with each book, I'm going to talk, tackle a few subjects and then get questions at the end from all of you. When we're going through the Old Testament, something to be aware of is that the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament is. Uh, but more things are explicit in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. For instance, uh, there is really no explicit reference to the Trinity in the Old Testament. But there's no explicit reference in the New Testament, at least by way of God directly stating that, you know, I am a Trinity. Jesus uh, didn't say that. But we can look at our Lord's words before he ascended, right? We can put together these teachings on the Holy Spirit. We can say, oh, no, Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus. Uh, Both of them are just as much God as God the Father, right? It's it's one God, three persons. Uh, So you have to look at what the church uh, is saying and how the church views some of these books of the Bible. When you do that, right, then you can put all the pieces together. Uh, so we can see God's identity in the Old Testament, uh, that humanity but humanity wasn't ready for the revealed truth of God as a triune God. We see echoes there, and there are implicit references to the Trinity, uh, but we really need the witness of the New Testament. We really need Jesus' words himself uh, to find those latent meanings that were just God was waiting for in history to reveal those to us. In retrospect, it should all make sense, but as we read the Old Testament, we have to always remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the linchpin of sacred scriptures. Right? It's all about him. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened the scriptures to his disciples as he told them of how all the writings referred to him. All the writings were about him, right? from Genesis all the way forward. Uh, it's kind of nifty to think about, too, that uh, in the Word of God, right, but the Bible is really only one word, and it's, it's Jesus, right? It's the second person of the Trinity. And, and the Bible is sort of an, a visible image of the invisible God in that sense. Uh, but let's delve into the book of Genesis. Uh, the book of Genesis, very first book of the Bible, and it has the same root word in that name, Genesis, as generation, uh, as in how God generated the world and the first few generations of humanity. Uh, the Hebrews called it Beresith, more or less literally, the word that begins. Right? Very appropriate when you consider the very beginning of the book of Genesis. How everything that God, uh, whenever God creates, he creates by speaking. You know, God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's God's word that he's able to, it's through his word that he gets creation going. Uh, It might sound like God said different sentences to bring existence there, but once again, it's that one word. It's just, it's God speaking the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Um, And in God's mind, the Bible is one word, and it's uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the eternal word of the Father. That's what's all being spoken by God through the Bible. Uh, Jews don't know that, but it is interesting when they call it Bereseth, the beginning word, uh, how they're kind of, They're almost uh, giving some evidence for the Trinity by doing that, even though they don't know that. They're not aware. Uh, One of the first things you might come across in the book of Genesis is the fact that there are about two and a half creation accounts in Genesis. But remember when you read certain books of the Bible, especially Genesis, the writers aren't concerned about an exact historical beginning of the world. Uh, They're not giving you the play-by-play. In the book of Genesis, they're not giving you, uh, uh, they're not concerned with telling you the timing of how the world came about. They want to tell you how the world came about. And there's something a little mysterious in there because humans weren't there for it. We had to wait for God to create us uh, to be in the world. It says that the world came about in seven days. So how do we read this? Is it seven 24 hour periods of the day? Was it a thousand years each day was a thousand years a thousand years to God are like one day and one day is like a thousand years or is the term day used to mark off just God's creating action, regardless of how much chronological time it take. So one of the days might have taken 4000 years another day might have taken 8000 years how is it that we can look at this and reconcile these different ideas the answer is that it can be any of those. That we don't have to really put all of our chicken or all of our eggs in one basket. Uh, that we can kind of say, well, it, these meanings jive, and there's nothing against the the meaning when we interpret the, the beginnings in that way. So, it could be any of them. Uh, and some knowledge, like that knowledge, is is really only God's. And until God reveals that to us, until He gives us a great mystic of some sort, we really can't you know get a hundred percent to to what that meaning is um, uh, and it's another reminder that the Bible is written on God's terms it's written so that we can understand it uh, but there's something that always remains a little mysterious about the Bible when we read it uh, as we have gone over before uh, the, at least in one or one of my talks the Bible is completely inerrant uh, but it's not necessarily literal right error and truth you know God is the truth Those can't coexist next to each other. So everything in the Bible is true, but what changes is the way that we interpret that, right? How do we see uh, the how? How do we see what's actually being said? Uh, Sometimes it is absolutely literal. Other times it's literal in more of like a spiritual sense. Um, So any of those meanings, those three 24-hour period day, uh, a thousand years for each, or you know, just marking off one creative action of God, uh, none of those should be a problem for us. They all, they all jive with God being the one who made the world, and he did it in his time. Uh, not that uh, we know exactly what that timing is in, in a historical sense. If God can create out of nothing, as in absolutely nothing, Uh, then why should we have a hard time believing that he could have created everything in seven 24-hour periods of the day? It seems that if God could bring existence from nothing, uh, that this should be completely plausible to us. Why wouldn't he be able to do it in a short period of time? Uh, So you see, when you start thinking about big picture, uh, even the things that might seem, oh, that's just the fundamentalists say that. Right. Even some of those things start to seem well no that's that's actually plausible. We're talking about God here, uh, and he's not limited in the same way we are Which whenever we make something whenever we make you know an artifact or a tool or whatever have you, we always use something that's already there we we mold it we shape it, we form it, whereas God just out of nothing right that creation he comes, he brings it into existence um there was nothing there before it's sort of hard to conceptualize but Right? That's the way that it is. That's the way that the Bible tells us how it began. Another thought as you read Genesis is to look for overarching meanings of texts. So sometimes we can get a little bogged down on the, in the details. If you uh, try to split hairs at different points, you're going to get lost in the minutia. I mentioned that there were two and a half, roughly two and a half creation accounts. One where light was made first and then it ends with man. And then immediately afterwards, it sort of starts another one where man's made first and then the anim- animals and plants and then uh, the rivers and out of the garden. Uh, and then there's the, the mini like half account, I call it, where it just kind of the world sort of starts. There, there's no sort of prelude to it like the very beginning of Genesis or the second account. So wouldn't that seem contradictory if God just if there's one creation, right? Why would it give us this kind of two and a half? well, uh, what's the overarching theme? How are we to understand that? Uh, and if you read it as in, the, if you look at the material universe and what it's saying, that God cherished mankind and that man we're the most important creation out of all the material universe. When you understand that, ah, those two and a half count, accounts of creation don't really matter so much um, because... Whether man was created first, as in you know, like prime, right? The, the most important material being, right? That has that meaning. Whether God was created last, as sort of the rest of creation was like a rough draft. And then man is the capstone, the pinnacle of it all, uh, that, that holds it kind of together. Yeah, that jibes too with man being the most cherished in, in the material universe by God. Um, and, and we see that they, they both get that, that same point across and they really don't contradict in that sense. Uh, so once again, be careful about being, you know, historically literal about reading the Bible. Uh, sometimes you have to look at the spiritual sense. What's underneath that? You know, what's the author saying here? Uh, what's God talking to us through the author about? So some more ground rules for Genesis. Uh, before the sin of adam all of the material universe existed in harmony with man right who was in complete harmony with god there was no division beforehand uh, adam could have you know pointed at a lion and said come here the lion would have, of course you know come over obeyed adam done what he said uh, but after the fall you tell a lion come here it might sort of do that if it's hungry right you might have to deal with the consequences of that being eaten but uh, it's, it's because that's what it wants to do, not because it understood you, not because it wants to obey you and is in harmony with the rest of creation and you and God. Um, so the material universe now is sort of a little askew of what it's meant to be. Uh, even after baptism, we still have to deal with the effects of concupiscence. Even if we've been freed from all our sins through baptism, we still have to deal with some of those effects that we don't always want the right thing, that some sins still look attractive to each and every one of us right different um you know different sins sort of get different people um and just looking at that too it's easy to see okay yeah god made us good but something happened something happened to 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 set all these things and all of us at odds with each other and and with at odds with the the universe itself god gave our parents only one rule to follow that was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil one thing right that's all god asked of our first parents and they couldn't keep that rule and and these is our first parents they had enlightened intellects so they didn't have beatific vision like like jesus did throughout his life but they possessed the fullness of natural reasoning you know very very smart they they got it whatever they wanted to learn um it, it was right there yet they were still tricked by the devil so we also have some teaching about angels in that beginning story of Genesis. That as bright as our first parents were, the devil and all angels, they're smarter than we are, even when we're at our best. Just level of nature, angels are, are greater than us. Um, they're smarter than us. They're more powerful than we are. And we see uh, evidence of that power at the very end, after Adam and Eve, of course, get expelled from the garden. Who does the expulsion? It's a cherub. flaming sword it's an angel that drives out our first parents so there's angels are above us in uh, the created universe by nature it's only by god's grace um, uh, through baptism through living out the gifts of the holy spirit and, and building those virtues that we sort of you know a third of the angels fell from the sky that god kind of plugs up those holes with us so some of our greatest saints are in the same choir, you know, same level as the uh, the seraphim, right? Same level as cherubim. Uh, we, can, we can be right next to them in heaven after God's grace comes in. But on our natural level, we really don't have any business being there. We don't even have any business really being in heaven. That just shows you how great of a gift uh, that is that God has given us. And you might think, well, you know, it's pretty bad. They were expelled from the garden. They knew they did wrong. They were ashamed of what they did. Uh, but that was really just the first offense. Uh, we find that the world keeps offending God. The very next generation, we find the first murder in Cain uh, killing his brother Abel. We fast forward a little bit more. The world had become so depraved with all sorts of sins uh, that God almost wiped out the entire earth. He spared Noah and Noah's kin and the, the clean uh, animals on the earth. But we, we keep finding that humanity keeps going back to sin. Uh, once again, even after Noah and the flood, as much as God did, uh, humanity still sin, sinned at Babel with the the pride that they had, thinking they could become like God just through purely natural means, purely human means, they could equal the Almighty. God destroyed the tower, and then a diversity of languages came into existence. Right. It wants to give you that background. Why are things the way are the way that they are? Uh, how did God work through um, all of creation? And what were sort of the players of humanity in uh, the, those creating years? Um, and, and that's really what, what Genesis gives us. That's how Genesis lays that groundwork for creation in its first part in number one, but then it sets. The stage for the beginning of man's redemption in the next part. Uh, so, when we go into um, the the next section, we start talking about the patriarchs. We talk, start talking about the first covenant that God had with, uh, or not the not the first covenant because Noah, it was back to Noah and then even before. Um, but still, uh, we, we find that God still cares about us. Now, the second part begins. Mostly, our history of, of salvation, God starting to fix things. What was the first thing that God did after He expelled Adam and Eve from the garden? He clothed them, right? He did. He helped them. Uh, he covered their shame. He had some mercy on them. That was the first action that God did. Punished them, gave them what they deserved, but at the same time, uh, you know, treated them with love, treated them with kindness. And we can see that that turn. Uh, It only God keeps showing more and more kindness to us as time goes on, even though we keep showing less and less love toward him. Uh, The next section begins dealing with the first uh, generations of patriarchs. The covenant with Abram kicks this off and we continue to get a survey of the world, how it keeps turning back to sin. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah being a prime example of this. Uh, and even Abram, Abraham himself, he's not perfect. When he went into Egypt, uh, Pharaoh was very much taken aback by the beauty of Sarah, even though she was 70-something years old and wanted to marry her. And uh, Abraham was afraid that if he told her, Pharaoh that she was his wife, that Pharaoh would have killed him. Uh, so he said, oh, no, she's, she's, my, she's my sister. And then Pharaoh eventually ended up finding out and then you know, was angry at them and sent them on their way. But we even find patriarchs not doing the right thing all the time. That even them, uh, you know, these pillars of, of the Jewish faith and these, these pillars who are uh, to, to help set the stage of, of God coming and redeeming us, uh, that they didn't live exemplary lives all the time. Uh, the promise that we find God giving to Abraham is what the, the le- next section of Genesis is all about, the sort of the third section, which I like to call the birthing wars. Uh, the firstborn always gets the generation uh, the blessing from the father by right. Uh, and this, of course, creates tension with the other uh, siblings. We have Jacob and Esau being born, and um, Jacob was holding on to Esau's foot. right? sort of like he was supposed to be the firstborn, but Esau you know, somehow beat him to the punch. and then Esau selling his birthright just for a cup of soup. Uh, kind of silly. But uh, then when Jacob goes to collect the birthright, Esau says, oh, no, it's mine, right? I'm the firstborn. So there's all this tension, right, in birds. There's tension, too, between uh, you know, Isaac and Ishmael and, and Hagar wanting to get the, Abraham's blessing, even though it was really promised to um, you know, his, his, his son who was born through marriage you know, legitimately. Uh, so there, there are all these these struggles there with ancestors, with love and marriage, with them sort of wrestling to find their place before God who made the world and trying to find their own uh, way to live out uh, their, their lives as best they can. You see the patriarchs, they're struggling to settle down um, like Isaac and Jacob. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be numbered as the grains of the sand of the seashore. Or the stars in the sky. What's funny about that passage is during the daytime, Abraham couldn't see the stars in the sky. But isn't that just kind of the generations that come after us? We won't be able to see all of them, uh, but there certainly will be a lot. You have to have faith to believe God's promise. Um, but there's even in that, right, there's this struggle to cooperate with God's promises and to really listen to Him and trust Him. That's why Abraham had that uh, illegitimate son, Ishmael, right? He thought, oh, well, Sarah's old, You know, she won't be able to bear a son. And so he find, tries to find this other means to do so. So it's really humanity is grappling with you know, how is God promises us something and we don't think that he might be able to fulfill that, even though, once again, he created the world out of nothing. Why shouldn't we trust that God can do anything in his creation? Uh, another mystery as you go on and read, the first five books of the Bible is how they're broken up with Joseph and his father going in and brothers going into Egypt. It almost seems like the start of a new book when we hit uh, Joseph and and his dad uh, and that we've almost gone into Exodus, but we haven't, we're still in Genesis at that point. It's another reminder that it's God's ways, not our own. Uh, and, And that pattern sort of continues halfway through Exodus. It seems to be another book and the first half of Leviticus that should be, it's sort of like each book should be moved up by a half step, Uh, but they're not. And that's okay, uh, because God is still speaking to us through them. He's still giving us uh, the beginnings of of how he made us and his first big covenants with humanity. Uh, But getting back to the topic of marriage and some of the goings-on, you have to realize that God's permissive will is at work. So ideally, Jacob, and the other patriarch have had only one wife. Yet two were tolerated because of the sorry state of humanity. Fast forward once again. Jesus corrects this, that, you know, man and woman, he created us. Yeah, he created man and woman to be together, not to have, you know, man and multiple women. Right? Marriage is just one man, one woman. Um, but out of the hardness of, of men's hearts, right, there were sort of these concessions that God didn't necessarily approve of, but he allowed it to happen. Uh, same thought as god allows evil in the world because there's some good that comes out of it some better good it's not that god is making the evil happen it's just that well someone's choosing this i can transform that later if they'll they'll um, you know cooperate with me to be something better for them uh, so when you're reading uh, genesis uh, pay attention to what sinful actions god punishes and which ones he doesn't really say anything about because those are little more tolerated. Um, uh, there's no comment from heaven when Jacob takes a second wife. You can also pay attention to the phrasing of sentences regarding the personification of God. Uh, so we know that God, right, He's um, his, his essence is just to be. He's completely above material creation. Uh, yet we'll find passages that said that uh, God smelt the burnt offering from Abraham on, on Mount uh, Moriah. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't have nostrils, at least not until the incarnation, right, in Jesus Christ. Uh, But what what are the authors trying to do? They're trying to show how we're made in in God's image, that it's really focusing on how it all goes back to God and God's design for us uh, and trying to get us to understand, uh, you know, uh, the Israelites, they were a crude tribe, trying to get them to understand that, No, we can please God by what we do. No, we can offend God by what we do. It goes both ways. And it's the very beginnings of trying to get through to these people's hearts. The concepts behind some difficult passages, they actually don't go away, but they continue. Uh, Take, for instance, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Kind of a spoiler alert for for Exodus. Uh, But God did not cause Pharaoh to sin. However, what did God do? He gave Pharaoh the minimal amount of grace not to sin. Uh, So it wasn't impossible for him to do the right thing. It would have just been very hard for him to let the Israelites go. Uh, And in that way, you know, God did not tempt the king of Egypt. God let that ruler have what his heart wanted, even though it was evil. Because through that, what happened? God saved the Israelites. The exodus happened. They were able to leave Egypt, able to leave unjust rulers and become, you know, God's people in an even greater way. They were given a new covenant on Sinai. That concept, as I said, doesn't go away. It appears again in the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray the Our Father. Towards the end, there's that line that some people will shy away from and lead us not into temptation. Uh, the way that God deals with us is the same way that he deals with Pharaoh. Uh, he allows us to make a mistake Um so that uh our hearts and it's a mistake that our hearts have already chosen um the wording as such it points to god being in charge both in the the old testament and the new testament you know god isn't the one who is directly hardening pharaoh's heart pharaoh did that to himself but god still governs all of it god isn't the one who leads us into temptation but he allows it so um some better good could come out of it so nothing happens that's outside of God's divine providence. Right? He either directly wills it, and it happens, or he passively wills it, uh, like the existence of evil, like the way that our, our world is right now. God doesn't, didn't want it to be exactly like this right? Uh, in his direct will, but in his passive will, it's what we've wanted, so it's what we get right? by choosing our, our sins over him. Um, God would never create anything evil, if God, we're, God wouldn't create something, he would just choose not to create evil, right, in the very beginning. If it was evil and abhorrent to him, he just doesn't create that. Uh, and we're reminded of his providence in the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Although he was sold into slavery, he was elevated by God, and he was used to save his people from their downfall when that famine hit. He saved his father, he saved his brothers, and the Israelite nation, they were welcome in Egypt. Uh, for all the good that Joseph did for the people and sparing them in the famine. So God works in mysterious ways. And how great is it that we get this window into that through sacred scripture, especially in the book of Genesis, seeing the kind of the, uh, the very beginnings of humanity. Uh, from the very beginning of time until now, God has been and continues to be in charge of all of it. Uh, if you're having trouble understanding a text, Look at the issue at hand and, and look up something about whatever it is. If it's an issue with morality, look up Catholic morality. Look up church morality. All right? uh, look at, If it's a purely something with commentary, look up a saint's commentary. There are resources out there. Uh, so just you know, uh, delve a little bit deeper because the obvious answer isn't always the correct answer. Uh, and, and sometimes we have to fit that into the bigger picture. As I said, brought up those three things, right the 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 Virgin Birth, Mary not having to go through labor, uh, Saint John the Baptist uh, always knowing that Jesus was the Messiah and never doubting him, and um, and the other thing that I talked about as well, uh, oh yeah, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, being really uh, united in heart and love from the start, not having that division right away, but really uh, e- existing as they should have from the beginning, uh, so. It, what might seem obvious might actually not be true. And that's why you have to, um, you have to always be willing to, to go the extra distance to try to understand what's really going on in a passage. Or ask a priest, you know a priest who's, who studies these things and, and knows. Um, those usually get you answers, but sometimes you'll come across a mystery that only God can answer. And it's when you do this that so you have to have humility. Just realize, okay, I'm only human. I'm not going to know everything. Uh, or God hasn't chosen to reveal it yet in time, so we have to wait for it, and that's okay. God gives us everything for what's what's best for us, Um, and he gives it into the time that behooves humanity. Genesis sets the stage for the rest of God's actions with humanity, Uh, and all stories have to start somewhere, and Genesis happens to be where the story of man's salvation begins. Uh, So that's my little introduction to Genesis. Do we have any questions? Well, you referenced the Blessed Mother and the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Could you just expand upon that a little bit? Sure. The Blessed Virgin Mary, it's one of the um, uh, dogmas of our faith, that she remained a virgin before, during, and so none of the internal structures were disrupted within her. Her giving birth to Jesus would have been as light passing through a window, right? She would have remained intact the whole time. So, Therefore, she didn't go through labor. There was no destruction to any of her physical uh, organs or her body during the birth of Christ. So, so physically, how was Jesus born? Uh, I wish I could remember where the writings for that were, but you know, think of in the usual way, except nothing was damaged. Yeah. Once again, right? Miraculous conception, miraculous birth. And God would have wanted to preserve the Blessed Mother uh, throughout all of time in that great gift. Um, you know, the humility was really kind of like her greatest gift, but her virginity sort of crowned that gift and was an addition to it, uh, which uh, very much God shows us the the value of that, the value of the human body, the value of, of keeping, uh, you know, his, his virtues within your heart. But as far as we know, it was a regular childbirth. It was not regular in the sense that there was no labor, no pain, no destruction, but it was regular in the sense that she actually gave birth. One other question. Sure. The, uh, The Jewish Torah, is that similar to the Old Testament? That's a part of the Old Testament. So the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Uh, If you go and you looked at some of the different Jewish sects that were around during Jesus' time, the Sadducees only thought the Torah was it. that Those first five books of the Bible, no prophets, no any of that. It it was just no wisdom literature, just the Torah. That's all they were working off of for inspired literature. The Pharisees, they they accepted uh, a whole breadth of it. And even some books that... um, you know kind of fell out of use then we realized that that weren't inspired you might get a couple of references to Enoch here and there in sacred scriptures but Enoch's not a part of the bible like it's not inspired but still it was on people's minds um so yeah. Who's, <clears throat> who is judith in the bible who is judith in the bible you're going to have to wait till my judith oh, talk okay. to figure that out <laughs> okay. yeah yeah but she's sort of the um i mean just kind of based off of what I know, she's almost a summary of representation of all uh, the, the Jewish nation, really, and kind of a forerunner of, of Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary as well, uh, having all those virtues, delivering um, you know, her people from, uh, really from Holofernes, right? The, um, uh, from being conquered and destroyed by this other people, much in the same way that which Mary's fiat, let it be done unto me according to thy word, she conceived and bore the savior of the world. Uh, so she is really, um, you know, Jesus is the savior, but he chose to also use the Blessed Virgin Mary that our salvation comes from her as well. That God worked through her and absolutely gave us salvation through her. Yeah. And Judith is a kind of an archetype, a pre-yeah, pre-Marian type. Yeah, Mary contains the fullness, just like Joseph contained the fullness of all the virtues of all the patriarchs. Mary contains, well, even more so, um, she contains the fullness of all the the matriarchs, all of the, the women who are good in the Old Testament, right, and even all the patriarchs, she has more virtue, more grace than all the angels and saints in heaven combined, mm-hmm. that ever will be. So. And she wrote a book in the Bible? No. The book of, or a letter? Yeah. No. Yeah, Mary, Blessed Mother, did not write any books. She yeah, might have inspi- She might have helped Saint Luke, perhaps, but who knows? And yeah, it's hard to say who wrote some of them. Was it you know Judith herself who wrote it down? Uh, most likely, it was someone afterwards. A lot of them say it's oral tradition, which can be very, very accurate. You know, we all pray the Our Father the same way, and we've been doing that for a long time. Uh, so, oral tradition can absolutely keep the the right words intact. Yeah. Is there a reason, or um, why God chose that time to send His Son? Yeah. So the question is: Is there a reason why God chose the time He did to send His Son into the world? Uh, what I would look at would be the the Roman Empire. Really, the Roman Empire brought stability. It brought roads. It brought a mail system. Uh, it, it brought a lot of uh, countries together. It, it sort of uh, unified language in a sense. I mean, they're sort of piggybacking off of the Greek culture and Greek language. But it, it brought it made the world a lot more connected to receive that salvation. Because the Christian faith, even though it was illegal for 300 years, it spread like wildfire. Uh, and you can have letters you know, as, as far back as just within 30 years of our Lord uh, ascending into heaven you know, from uh, Trajan uh, to Pliny the Younger, that we find the Romans are asking, you know, how do we deal with these Christians? You know, what are they? What what, what is their what is their shtick really? Uh, and the you can also say that well, uh, the time coming in the time that he did, the Greeks also uh, a, a robust uh, set of philosophies, right? So all of these things was kind of um, Humanity, God was helping humanity to develop to a certain place, and then at the right time, God came uh, to really set the world on fire with with His love and His His message of salvation. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the timing there with with our Lord's incarnation. And yeah, He was also alive so far back that most of the humans who would be alive, uh, it's like I think it's over ninety nine percent of the humans that would be alive ever or that ever existed came after him so it might seem like oh well we've been around for a long time before that but it's really uh most of humanity's only come about into existence after our lord's incarnation which is pretty uh, interesting to think about too yeah so all these things right um that's what i'm talking about look at overarching themes look at big picture and try to try to fit it together any other questions In the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen.